Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter 2. While you find your place, I want to thank our visitors for being here today. Hope you feel welcome in the house of the Lord. And uh, it's a privilege and blessing to have you here with us. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving weekend. Man, I did. I praise the Lord for it. I ate too much. Amen. And uh, I, I enjoyed uh, myself too much and, and just uh, enjoyed uh, being around my family and enjoying time with them. And I trust you did as well. Revelation chapter number 2. And I want to read three portions of Scripture here in this chapter. Uh, Revelation chapter number 2. Let's begin in verse number 1. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 1. The Bible says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Look down with me at verse 12. The Bible says unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. Look down with me at verse 18. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. We'll stop there and pray. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for your goodness and mercy. Thank you for a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday protecting us, watching over us. And Lord, bring us back into your house. I pray that as we have assembled here today, that you would help us to have our hearts trained upon the truth of the Word of God. May we be fixed in our focus upon you this morning. And may we have come this morning not just because it's formality, not just because it's routine. Lord, that's not why you showed up this morning. But you showed up to do a work in our hearts and in our lives. And I pray that we'd show you the, the reverence and the honor and the respect. Show up with the same purpose in mind. Lord, if it's not been our purpose, may we make it our purpose now to see you do an eternal work in us in a way that would bring you glory. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the word of God. And I pray that you'd bless it. Lord, so often in my life, there's things that you cannot bless. But Lord, this morning you can bless your word. And that's what I ask, that you'd bless your word this morning and bring yourself glory through it. Lord, we love you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice with me a similar phrase that is used three times in our text. Verse number 4, uh, the Word of God says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Verse number 14, we have a similar phrase. It says, But I have a few things against thee. Verse number 20, writing again to a local body of believers, the Lord says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. God's got something against me. I don't know if you've ever heard someone utter that phrase. I have in my life. Oftentimes you'll talk to somebody, a lost individual, and you'll try to witness to them, talk to them about the Lord. And they'll say, well, you know, sometimes it's just like God's got a problem with me. They'll say, you know, sometimes it's just like God's got something against me. And they'll lament the problems in their life and they'll lament the things they wish they had that they don't, the things they wish they'd never experienced that they have. And they'll say, you know, sometimes it just feels like God has a problem with me. 
Sometimes I've even heard saved individuals use language like this. I've heard them say things like, well, you know, preacher, I just wonder if God's mad at me. I just wonder if God's angry with me. I just wonder if God has a problem with me. And I will tell you this, that my uh, instinctive reaction to all of those questions is always, oh, no. No, that's not true. God doesn't have a problem with you. God doesn't have anything against you. There's no issue between you and the Lord. And often in an attempt to be uh, comforting to them and to encourage them, we'll say things like that. But, you know, if we're going to be biblical people, I think we ought to be biblical people, don't you? I think we ought to... It ain't just... To say we're a Bible believer ought to mean something. And if we're going to be Bible believers, then according to the authority of the Word of God, I find that there are several occasions in Scripture, even beyond this that we've read this morning, where God absolutely did have a problem with someone and the way they were living. You say, preacher, sometimes I feel like God has got something against me. And I'd have to say this, well, maybe He does. I cannot promise you He does not. But I can guarantee you that if we dig into the Word of God, we can find out if He does and why He does. Now, let me begin by making a few statements here. One, I would say this. What does this statement signify? The Lord says to these three local churches, I have somewhat against thee. I have something against thee. I have a few things against thee. What does God mean when He says this? Well, I think it's important to compartmentalize our human perspective and what we know about the divine nature of God. Let me say, number one this morning, that this statement is not an evidence of spite. Sometimes when we say that person's got something against me, what we mean is they have animosity or anger towards us. I know there have been times... Have you ever just been around somebody, you can tell they had a problem with you? Did it ever occur to you other folks can tell when you've got a problem with them? <laughs> I've been around people sometimes that... Uh, sometimes for no reason at all had a problem with me. Sometimes for very good reason had a problem with me. And often what we mean when we say that, well, I think they got something against me. Well, I think they got a problem with me. I, I think there's something. But what we mean is that they dislike us or they disdain us. But I would tell you this, though, it is true that judicially God's angry with the wicked every day. Though it is true that a righteous God hates unrighteous sin, that the disposition of God in Scripture, both to the saved and to the lost, is not that of animosity, but rather that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You say, preacher, does God love me? Oh, yes, God loves you. God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God is not setting up upon the petty throne of a tyrant, scandalized by something in your life and angry with you in spite and malintent. It's not an evidence of spite. And then I would say this, uh, just as it's not an evidence of spite, it's also not an occurrence of sabotage. Sometimes when I've heard people use this terminology, it's in relation to some sort of tragedy or problem that has entered into their life. People will have something take place, maybe a a physical problem, maybe the loss of a loved one, maybe financial ruin. And they will say, you know, sometimes I just feel like God is against me. But, you know, when we read the Word of God, and it's interesting, the very first time that the Spirit of God spoke Scripture into the human experience, it was not on the topic of salvation. It was not on the topic of sanctification. It was uh, on the topic of suffering. There in the Old Testament, it's recorded for us the life of a man by the name of Job. And we understand this to be the very first book of the Word of God chronologically as far as its record is concerned, the very first one pinned down. And when we read the life of Job, we see a man whose life fell into utter ruin. We see a man who lost everything that it was possible for him to lose, save his own life. But we, peering behind the veil and the screen of heaven, no more than even Job knew at the time that this wasn't because God was sabotaging him, but rather because God was purifying and proving him and using him as an example of God's own faithfulness and preservation in his life. You say, preacher, sometimes bad things happen. Does that mean God's got something against me? No, we live in a broken world where bad things happen for all sorts of reasons. But even if God is permitting something bad to happen in your life, it doesn't mean He's angry at you. It doesn't mean He's got a problem with you. It means He has a grander plan for your life. 
Some people say, well, now, preacher, I mean, you know, something bad happened. Maybe God's got something against me. Well, two things can be true at once. It's possible, and certainly it's true in the life of a believer that chastening accompanies disobedience in their life. But just because something bad happened in your life, that doesn't mean that God has a problem with you. But here's what we do find. It's not an evidence of of spite. It's not an occurrence of sin. But here's what it is. It's the presence of sin in the life of the believer. You see, each one of these churches that John is writing to, and by the way, I understand the dispensational implications. I understand how in many ways we find a pattern that seems to have played itself out through Western Christianity uh, throughout time, and I'm aware. But don't lose sight of the fact that these are also three or seven literal churches. These are literal places with literal preachers and literal people. And he's writing to these churches about problems in their spiritual development and in their spiritual existence. You say, preacher, how can I know if God has something against me? Do you have sin in your life? That's how you can know. See, you don't have to guess about this. You don't have to wonder about this. You can know from the authority of God's Word. You know why? It's not that God has a problem with you, but it's that God absolutely has a problem with your sin. And when you have sin in your life, God has a problem with that. God has never once been comfortable with sin. We might be comfortable with it. The world might be comfortable with it. The church may grow comfortable with it. In fact, these had. But God is never comfortable with a man's sin. And as such, when we look in this passage of Scripture, it's not just saying, well, I just feel like God's angry at me. And it's not looking at problems in our life and saying, well, God must be angry. But rather, it's looking at sin in our life and saying, you know, a holy God must be angry with that sin, for He's angry with all sin. So we we can ask this question, what does this statement signify? Not an evidence of spite or an occurrence of sabotage, but rather it's the presence of sin in a person's life. But now consider these important truths. I, this is an introduction. And after I, this is actually, it's the introduction to my introduction. Really, if I'm being honest, it was an introduction to an introduction of my introduction that will then lead to a sermon. So stay with me this morning. Introduction part two. Consider these important truths. Notice this. It's not a matter of feeling. He said, preacher, sometimes I just feel like God's angry with me. And I want to make a few explicit statements here about our relationship with the Lord. It's true that every born-again believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Every single one. It's true that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We was talking in Sunday school out of Ephesians, teaching out of Ephesians chapter 4. It's one of the commandments that God gives there is, is grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. It's true we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It is likewise true that the Spirit of God can stir and disrupt our heart and deal with us. But it is likewise true that the matter of God dealing with sin in our life is not a matter of feeling alone. So how do you know that, preacher? Well, here's how. Because they had to be told. Every one of these churches had to be told that there was a problem and what the problem was. Could it be in your life and in my life that it's possible to develop such callousness? Could it be possible that in your life and my life it's possible to, to, to develop such a blind spot that we could have a problem in our life that's standing in between us and peaceful fellowship with the Lord and we have managed to blind ourselves to it, not even recognize it? I'd say from the authority of Scripture and from the testimony of these three churches and others as well, but from these three this morning in particular, that it is entirely possible for there to be a problem between us and God and us not be aware of it until the Word of God tells it to us. This, by the way, is why you need a church. It's why you need a preacher. It's why you need a Sunday school teacher. It's why you need those things in your life. You know why? Because we have a wonderful way of selectively reading through this book to tiptoe around our sin. And we need somebody that ain't as territorial over our sin as we are to get up and preach the truth to us sometime. Because the fact is, there are things that we'll develop a blind spot for. Notice it's not a matter of feeling, but it is a matter of fact. Christ details the exact problems in their life. I, let me just talk to married men for a second. Most of you women won't listen anyway. Continue as you were. But let me talk to you married men for just a moment. Have you ever just felt like there was a problem? Just felt like something's wrong? Women have wonderful ways of, of signifying. Sometimes they do it through words. Sometimes they do it through silence. Sometimes they do it through looks. Sometimes they do it through not looking at you. Sometimes it can just be almost imperceptible 
just, 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 not even, just puffs of breath can signify that you are in far deeper trouble than you were initially aware. And, you know, sometimes you'll feel like there's a problem. I was telling them in Sunday school this morning, I ain't going to get into it as deep as I did in Sunday school, but you spend a lot of time when you're married saying, honey, are you okay? Honey, are you all right? It probably gets on their nerves. I'm sure that it does. They probably want... <laughs> we'll set up some counseling later, all right? Let me get through this message. It probably gets on their nerves. I mean, sometimes, honey, are you okay? Are you all right? Are you okay? Are you all right? And uh, i tell you this. Let me tell you a good marriage trick, all right? You ready? If there's not anything wrong, just keep asking, and eventually there will be, all right? And then you can say this. I thought you said nothing was wrong. But, you know, sometimes when you're talking and trying to work things out, and it could be with a spouse, it could be with a friend, a sibling, a parent, whoever it might be, sometimes it can be hard to get to the heart of the matter. But I want you to notice what God does. He takes His eternal, preserved, inspired, inerrant Word, and He places it right on the heart of the problem in these churches. He says, I'll tell you exactly what the problem is. It is this. I will tell you, the sooner you learn to quit living your Christian life based upon feelings and instead upon fact and faith in the Word of God, the more stable, rooted, and grounded you will be. This is not merely a matter of saying, well, I think there might possibly maybe be something wrong, but rather looking at the Word of God and examining our life in light of it. Say, preacher, I don't feel like anything's wrong. It doesn't matter. What does the Word of God say about your life? Preacher, I'm not bothered by it. You may not be. The flesh is not bothered by sin. But what does God's Word say about that matter? I would say this, it's not a matter of feeling, it's a matter of fact. And then as a result of that, it's a matter of faith. See, here's the truth. For these churches to see any change, it was then up to them to take Christ at His word and respond accordingly. We have grown very adept at setting and, and, and having the truth of God poured and bathed over us and then getting up and going back and living the same lives that we were immediately prior to it. See, your life's not going to change just by you hearing preaching. It's going to change by you receiving the truth, the Word of God, in obedience and in subjection in your life. That's why it takes humility. We have to be willing to believe God. When He says there's a problem, and I know, because I know how human nature is, and you do as well, we have a tendency, we'll say, well, there's a problem, or God will say there's a problem, and we'll say, no, there isn't, Lord, we're fine. We're okay. Try that with your wife. See how long that works. Try that with your husband. See how long that flies. I got a problem with you. No, you don't. We're happy as can be. I promise that ain't going to get you very far. But we do God that exact way. He'll come to us and he'll say, Child, there's a problem in your life. This is sin. This is disobedience. And we'll say, No, Lord, I'm okay. I'm okay. I've always been struck by that. You hear it a lot when you go out and when you witness in this part of the uh, of the world. You'll talk to people. You say, Have you ever been saved? They'll say, I'm okay. You'll go to people and, and you'll say, uh, you know, do you know that the Lord is your Savior? You've been born again. They'll say, I'm okay. And then often, even as church members, we don't verbalize it the way the lost do at their front porch. But we do the same thing to God when we come into the house of God because the Spirit of God will deal with us and we'll say, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm okay, Lord. No, it's a matter of faith. We have to respond to the Word of God as it's given. And then notice the, the third introduction before the message, all right? <laughs> I want you to notice who this this phrase is addressed to. Now, here's what we instinctively say. Okay, preacher, that's right. You go get them. Get all them wicked people out there. But no, think about who this is written to. I would say this. Notice it's written to saints and not sinners. It's not written as a public appeal to a broken world, but it's written as a personal epistle to a local body. He says to believers, there's a problem. God's got an issue with you and you're not dealing with it. It's written to saints and not sinners. Notice number two, it's written to people in the church, not people out of church. Oh, yeah, preacher, God's got a problem with all them people laying out today. Well, he probably does if they have no good reason to do so. But notice that's not who he's speaking to. Oh, yeah, preacher, I, I got an uncle. I saw him over Thanksgiving. Ain't been in church in 20 years. Oh, yeah, preacher, I got a niece raised up in church. And now she's out in the world and all messed up. That's who that... No, this is talking to people sitting in the pews of Walridge Baptist Church this morning. People in church, not people out of church. But then notice this. It's written to committed Christians, not merely 
cold or casual or cultural Christians. At Ephesus, he says this, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. To Pergamos, he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. To Thyatira, he says, I know thy works and thy charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. At Thyatira, there's better than they were. And God still had a problem with them. In other words, these are the people that are not just sort of floating around casually. These are people that are plugged in, serving God, committed. And the Lord says, I've got a problem in your life. So what then were these three problems? Notice them with me very quickly this morning and we'll be done. Look with me to the church at Ephesus at what the Lord says. Verse number 4, He says this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Let me say number one this morning in Ephesus, God had a problem with their departure. So what do you mean, preacher? They were still in church. They was in church in body. But they had left their first love. Say, preacher, they're still serving God. They were still serving God with their members. But they had lost their heart for the Lord. Notice three things about this. Notice number one, their dedication at this church. Verse number 2, the Lord says, I know thy works, so they're serving the Lord. And thy labor, they're serving Him vigorously. And thy patience, they're not giving up or getting out. And how thou canst not bear them which are evil. They were personally, morally, spiritually sanctified, consecrated, living for God. They didn't have a bunch of wickedness in their life. He says, thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. They were doctrinally pure. He says, hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. They were faithful. They were committed. In other words, he's writing to people that you and I would call superstar Christians. People that look like they have everything together in their life. You know what we have a tendency to do? We prioritize issues in our life. And I'm not saying that's wholly unhealthy. But the danger in prioritizing is sometimes then we have a dismissive attitude towards things that fall lower on the priority list. Sometimes, I remember hearing a preacher say years ago, he told an illustration, he had two jars and he had an assembly of rocks before him. Some of them were big rocks and, and some of them were small uh, rocks. And, and with these uh, different size rocks and these jars, he gave an illustration. First he took all the little rocks and put them in the bottom of a jar. And then he took the big ones and tried to place them on top. And it didn't take long before those rocks were overflowing. Uh, There were rocks left on the pulpit. He couldn't even fit in the jar. Then afterwards, he uh, emptied them all out, and he took the rocks, the big ones, and he put those in first. Then after he had put all those in, he put a handful of little rocks in, and he shook it. When he did, they settled down a little lower. Then he put some more little rocks in, and then he shook it, and they settled down a little lower. Then finally took the last handful, put it on top and shook it. And what before would not fit now seemingly magically would fit. And his point was this. Get the big things in your life first. Then the little things will find their place. Let me say I I agree with that philosophy. I do think there is a great danger in getting tripped up on small things while ignoring big things in our life. And Christ made this statement to the Pharisees one time. He, he said, you know, uh, that you, 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 you uh, swallow a, a camel, you, you, you strain at a gnat, you, uh, you, you're missing the bigger picture of what God is seeking to do. He said, you tithe in mincing cumin. In other words, they'd break the, uh, the scales out and measure out, make sure they didn't accidentally give God too much. He said, but you forgive the way, you forget the weightier matters of the law. And he talked about righteousness and truth and holiness. But then notice what he said after that. He said this to him, you ought to do the one and not neglect the other. Part of our problem is we say, well, preacher, I got the big things, so I must have everything. Can I tell you, if those small things weren't important, God wouldn't have spoken about them. God's never wasted a breath or a word. And if those small things weren't important, He wouldn't have spoken about them in the first place. You say, preacher, but there's bigger things. Yes, and praise the Lord, you've got them under control. But what about the smaller things? It is the peak, it is the epitome of pride and hubris 
to think because we have a handful of big things. You say, preacher, I read my Bible every day. God bless you. It's wonderful. I think that's great. I recommend it to you. Preacher, I'm in church today. Uh, Other people aren't, but I'm here today. God bless you. It's wonderful. That's great. So you're telling me there's no little rocks in your life that need to be put in their proper place. Man, I see their I see their dedication. Then notice number two, I see their decision. He says, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. I'll not belabor this because I think it really floats on the surface of this passage. But I want you to just notice that they did not lose their love. They left their love. Uh, a lot of people's theology is shaped by country music. It's part of the country, it is. And uh, I remember my mom told me years ago about a lady that she knew. She uh, she heard, I can't remember what song it was. It was some hokey 70s country song. It wasn't even a good country song. But it was something about something about falling out of love. And uh, she had a friend years ago that left her husband. She heard this song, said, I just don't feel like I love him anymore, and, and left him. Amen. Uh, now, let me tell you something. I've heard some music at times in my life that made me want to go climb in a cave and never get back out. But that's no reason to be making a decision in your life whatsoever. And, you know, the the Hollywood perspective on this issue is that love is just this uh, inexplicable, unpredictable event that occurs in our life that's beyond our control. Uh, you've seen Hallmark, right? That's what they want you to believe, that if a man has a clean enough flannel shirt and the right beard, any divorcee will fall for them. You know, that's what Hallmark teaches you. This idea that... That, that love is just this spontaneous, it just happens, it just occurs in a person's life. This is not a biblical perspective on love. It has wrecked a lot of homes. But let me, cause let me tell you something. If, if, if your marriage ought to be worth fighting for. And if it is that kind of marriage, you're gonna have to fight for it. There's gonna be time, it's gonna take work. But let me just transfer that over into the spiritual realm because we have the same sort of attitude in regards to our relationship with the Lord. We think that, you know, through just the mere trajectory and coldness of the human condition, that we just have to somehow fall out of love with Jesus. And that then hopefully we bring an evangelist that carries revival around in his pocket that comes in and and revival happens to us. And then all of a sudden we're back in love with Jesus again. But the truth is, if you've grown cold in your relationship with the Lord, you've done so small, incremental, deliberate decision by deliberate decision. You've not lost your love of Him. You've left your love. It's a decision. It's a conscious decision that we make day in and day out. Notice their decision, but then notice their decline, or you could possibly say their desertion. What did they leave? Well, notice what it says. They left their first love. He says, Thou hast left thy first love. This is an interesting statement. Again, we have allowed Hollywood to inform our theology, and when we use that term love, we're using it as something reflecting an individual. We'll say, well, that person's the love of my life, or they are my love. But notice that the person they should love, the Lord Jesus Christ, is standing in their midst. They've not left His presence. He's still there. So what does He mean when He says, you've left your love? He's not talking about deserting a person, but He's talking about a diminishing in passion. He's talking about the quality and character and caliber of the love that they had once showed to him. Preacher, could God have a problem with me? If you don't love him like you used to love him, he's got a problem. He's got a problem. So, preacher, I'm not in any dark scarlet sin in my life. That's wonderful. Do you love him more now than you've ever loved him before? You say, well, preacher, I can't help it. There's things going on and there's problems and there's distractions. No, no. If you don't love him... Like you ought to love him. None of us love him like he deserves to be loved. But if you don't love him like you ought to love him, it's not because that happened to you. It's because you did that. You allowed that to take place and transpire in your life. We would all love to absolve ourselves of the responsibility of our relationship with the Lord. But the truth is, uh, if we'll draw an eye unto him, he'll draw an eye unto us. God's put the ball in our court. Uh, Bible Christianity is not something that just happens to a person but rather their relationship with the Lord is something. And it's true that salvation is instantaneous, complete, thorough in every way. He saves us to the uttermost. But the development of your relationship with the Lord and your fellowship with Him is something that is cultivated throughout your life through obedience and through pursuit of Him. And as such, listen, if it's not what it ought to be, it ain't His fault. It's our fault. It's our fault. You say, preacher, surely God don't have something against me. I'm in church today. 
Preacher, surely God don't have something against me. I, I read the Bible. I try my best to. Preacher, surely God don't have something against me. I try to have a prayer life. I even witness occasionally. And I think all those are very noble things. But where is your heart at today? Do you love Him with the passion that you once did? I would say in Ephesus, God had a problem with their departure. Look down at verse 14. The Lord, writing to the church at Pergamos, says this. He says, I have a few things against thee. That'd be how the Lord would say it to me. It wouldn't just be one thing. It'd be a few things. I have a few things against thee. Now, what's his problem here in Pergamos? Well, he tells us. He doesn't leave us wondering. He says, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, there's a lot we could say about this passage of, of Scripture, and particularly about the one to which it alludes. The story of Balaam is in Numbers 22 through 24 in the Old Testament. And uh, Balaam was a prophet. And uh, the Bible teaches us that uh, a man by the name of Balak, the king of Moab, he comes to Balaam and he wants to hire him to curse the children of Israel. See, the children of Israel had been storming a path out of Egypt and on towards Canaan. They had overthrown great nations and great armies. And, and Balak, he's worried that he's next on their list. And so in order to somehow stymie their advance, he goes to Balaam and says, here's what I need. I will pay you any amount of money it takes. I want you to go and curse the children of Israel. Balaam, because despite all of his flaws and failures and problems, seemed to be a true prophet, said to Balak, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. I won't curse them. Well, after Balak leaves, Balaam begins to think about that thing. And more than that, he begins to think about that big paycheck that would be coming to him. And so he goes to Balak and he says, all right, I'll go with you and I will curse them. And so they go the next day, and, and, and Balaam, and you know the story, Balaam's donkey, and, uh, you know, the, the angel of the Lord with the sword standing in front of him. But when he arrives to the children of Israel, he begins to try to curse them. I love what happens, because every time he opens his mouth to curse them, he instead blesses them. There's a great truth there about about the law and about God's dealings with us. Amen. I'm glad where the blessing lives, the curse cannot prevail, aren't you? But he begins to try to curse them. But he can't. He just keeps blessing them. So finally he gets frustrated and Balak gets frustrated and he goes to him and says, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. I cannot curse those that God has blessed. Well, they part ways and Balaam goes back home and he begins to roll that thing around in his mind again. And he begins to think to himself, you know, I can't curse them because they're blessed. But what if they weren't blessed? What if in fact they disobeyed the Lord And it wasn't I that had to curse them, but God Himself would bring a curse upon them because of their disobedience. So he goes back to the king of Moab and he says, I think I figured out a way. Here's what you do. I can't curse them, but you can go and and your wives and your daughters can seduce them to commit whoredoms and, and to participate in paganism and idolatry. And then once you get them involved in that activity, then all of a sudden you won't have to curse them and I won't have to curse them. God Himself will curse them for their sin and unrighteousness. You say, preacher, that's interesting. I appreciate that Sunday school lesson. But what does that have to do with me here today? There's a lot of things we could say about the spirit and disposition and attitude in the church today. But I will simply say this. The doctrine of Balaam is a doctrine of opportunism and permissiveness. It is a doctrine of do what feels good, irrespective of the consequences, spiritually speaking. But think about what this meant for them and think about what it meant for this little church. Think about three things about Israel at that time and how it applies to us. Notice, number one, Israel at that time, they were a traveling people. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, they were on a journey. They had left Egypt's darkness and were now headed to Canaan land's promise. God didn't anticipate or intend for them spending those 40 years in the wilderness. It wasn't the will of God. It wasn't the desire of God. It was through their disobedience that they dwelt there. But God's intention was not for them to stagnate, but for them to progress in their walk with Him. You know, it reminds me, you and I likewise are a traveling people. 
Just like when the children of Israel ate the Passover, they ate it with their shoes on their feet and their staff in their hand and their bags packed. When God saved you and me, He made us a traveling people. He changed our footwear. He changed our weapons, our utensils. He changed our purpose, our passion, our gold. And He changed the baggage we carry around. And now we are not driving our tent stakes deep in this world, but we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And in that journey, we are growing and developing in our relationship with the Lord. They were traveling people. Not only that, they were triumphant people. Why did Balak and, and, and Balaam do this? Well, because they were scared of the advance of the children of Israel. God was allowing Israelites to live in victory, to see great things accomplished. You know, that's the will of God for you and I as well. God didn't save you so you could be defeated and discouraged. Listen, I know we get discouraged sometimes. I do. I wish, you know, I could say amen when the songwriter says we should never be discouraged. I guess we shouldn't be. Sometimes I am. Amen. But the truth is, it's not the will of God that we live in defeat and discouragement. We are on the winning side. We are triumphant. We're a triumphant people, but then they were attempted people. What could not be accomplished... Uh, through uh, through deceit, or, uh, what could not be accomplished through brute spiritual force was accomplished through deceit and through temptation. The truth is, they were tempted away from their love and desire for the Lord. You know, if we're not careful, we'll allow the same thing to happen in our life. Then I would say this, they're a tripped up people. They allowed this to happen in their life. And because of this, uh, God does bring a curse upon Israel. And were it not for the uh, quick thinking of Aaron running through the congregation with the pot of incense and allowing them to be spared, the entire nation would have been wiped out. And why did all this happen? Let me say it this way. In Pergamos, God had a problem with their distractions. So just like the children of Israel were to be a traveling, a triumphant people, But we allow the things of this world to tempt us away from Him and to trip us up in our advance towards the Lord. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. You say, preacher, I'm trying to live for the Lord. I'm I'm trying to please God. I'm in church this morning. Praise the Lord. I, I, I want to please the Lord in my life. Do you have anything in your life that's slowing you down? Do you have anything in your life that's tripping you up? Do you have anything in your life that's luring you away? I'm glad we're on the winning side. I'm glad the devil's a defeated foe. Uh, But like good Tennessee football, we're all our own worst enemy. Amen? Uh, Sometimes people will say about football, they'll say, well, nobody can beat them, but they'll have to beat themselves. And you know, there's a truth in our life as well. Man, we're on the winning side of this thing, but that don't mean it's smooth sailing in regards to our testimony and our life. I'm glad my salvation is settled forever in heaven by the promise of God. I'm kept by the power of God under the day of salvation. I'm glad for that. But my life and what it amounts to for Christ is very much still in question. And it's only going to be what God desires for it to be in as much as I will keep my focus on Him and not allow the allurements, the temptations of this world to draw my heart and my focus away from Him. I'll tell you, we just... Man, we just have too much going on to get our eyes on Jesus. We're going to have to purge some things. I'm serious. I know we want to be everything for everybody. But are we being what we need to be for the Lord Jesus? Say, but preacher, everybody needs me. God owns you. I'm just going to say it again. How many times I people say sometimes, well, preacher, you're long-winded today. Well, I had to say something eight times before I could get you to understand it. You say, but preacher, everyone needs me. Yeah, but God owns you. You belong to Him. Never should we allow anything to crowd Him out. He is our everything. He is the lover of our soul. He's our Savior. We owe Him all that we are and have and will ever be. And the problem in Pergamos was they allowed somebody to cast stumbling blocks before Him. They allowed somebody to trip them up, to distract them, to get their eyes off of the Lord Jesus and to instead pursue after fleshly things. In Pergamos, God had a problem with their distractions. And finally, and I'm done this morning, look down at verse 20. Writing to the church at Thyatira, God says this, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now, as we said, there's a lot of things going on 
in this passage. You say, preacher, who's Jezebel? Well, probably in a dispensational sense, it's the Roman Catholic Church. You all right this morning? Just giving you some facts. It's all right. We'll be okay, won't we? We're still okay with facts around here, aren't we? Uh, It's probably the Roman Catholic Church. Probably to this local body of believers, it was an actual person. Uh, probably it was some woman that had come into the church, usurped the authority of the pastor, and was now trying to teach and spread her doctrine instead of what the Word of God taught. But whenever John uses, and whenever the Lord Jesus uses this term Jezebel, he's using it to hearken their minds back to a wicked woman of the Old Testament. Jezebel in the Old Testament was the Gentile daughter of the king of Zidon. She was the wicked wife of King Ahab, who was probably one of the most wicked kings to ever reign over the northern kingdom of Israel. Through her influence, Baal worship was revitalized in Israel. It had a revival and it had an an advancement in Israel that it had never had before. And she is, without question, the enemy of God and the enemy of Elijah in the Old Testament. She is viewed as a wicked and corrosive influence upon the people of God. And now the Lord Jesus says to this church, you've got someone in your midst that is changing you for the worse. And there's a danger here. We could say it this way. In Thyatira, God had a problem with their defilement. They allowed somebody to come in and begin to spread poison in their midst. And God had a problem with that. Can I tell you this? It ain't the will of God that we be friends with everybody. It ain't the will of God that we allow just anybody to be a part of Wall Ridge Baptist Church. It ain't the will of God that we be close to just anybody. God has standards. and Hey, you got standards for your kids? I hope you do. Certain kids you wouldn't want them to be close with or to be friends with. Certain kids that, that maybe you would want to guard them from. Why do you think God would feel any different about His kids? And so there's a, there's a defilement in this body of believers. Notice what defilement it is. There's three things mentioned here. The first thing he says is this, Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach. They were defiled in their doctrine. They believed some wrong things. I, I, I don't know. I guess we need to say this, because the Lord wants me to say it. God's got a problem with us believing wrongly. You say, but preacher, they love Jesus. Okay. I guess. Do they love His Word? Because if they don't love this book, they don't love Him. Because He and this book are inseparable. He's the living Word. This is the written Word. Well, you know, preacher, and listen, we, we all, at least me, I, I know personally I'm embarrassed to think when I get to heaven how many things I'm going to have to get straightened out about. But it's one thing to be uh, ignorant in a matter. It's one thing to find out afterwards that maybe you were a little off on a, on a matter. But this woman knew she was teaching poison and kept doing it anyway. And the Lord says, i got a problem with you allowing that kind around. You know why? You say, preacher, it don't matter what we believe. Yeah, it absolutely matters what you believe. It's hard to imagine what matters more than that. What we believe shapes and defines who we are as a Christian. You couldn't have got saved if you didn't believe the right thing about the gospel. It took believing correctly about the gospel for you to be born again. And for us to be the Christian that God desires for us to be, it takes believing correctly about the Word of God. You say, well, preacher, there's some things I just don't know about. Then learn about them. What a, what a, what a flimsy, thin excuse it'll be to stand before God, having been armed with this book our entire lives and never made an attempt to understand it. I said, Preacher, does God have a problem with people that believe wrong? Yeah. That's why He gave us a book. That's why He gave us truth. You say, Preacher, is He sitting up in heaven stewing about it? No. But He's got a problem with wrong belief. And if you believe wrong or if I believe wrong, He's got a problem with wrong belief. They were defiled in their doctrine. Notice number two, they were defiled in their deeds. He said, not only to teach, but to seduce my servants to commit fornication. In other words, they were living wickedly. God has a problem with people living wickedly. We're just, we're in, the, we're, we're in, listen, this is, I'm talking about high level, calculus, college level of Bible theology. You ready? God has a problem with sin. Not just in their life, but in your life. 
God has a problem with sin, with disobedience. He, he says to this church, I have several problems. One of them is you're all messed up on your doctrine. You don't know what you believe and what you do believe, you believe wrongly. God says, I got a problem with that. I gave you a book to fix that. So get in that book and learn what the Word of God teaches. But then he said, I got a problem because even the things you know to be true, you're not living according to. You've got wickedness, uh, ungodliness. He uses the term fornication. And this very it could have been very literally fornication in the sense of an act of the flesh. But it also could have included spiritual fornication. And idolatry being what it was at that time in human history, likely it included both of those things. It's very fitting because, you know, the truth is uncleanness in the flesh will bring uncleanness in our fellowship. Uncleanness in our walk will bring uncleanness in our worship. And he says, i got a problem because you got some wicked things in your life. Man, it's amazing how we can develop the blind spots we do. We do, man. I'm, I'm talking about things we know better. I look at my kids sometimes. Half the time it seems like the only thing I say to my oldest boys, you knew better. I don't even have to say what it is. You know why? Because he knew better. You ever had your kid do this? I don't know if you have. If you haven't ever had this, it's probably a problem. Have you ever had your kid do something and then immediately go and look at you? Because they knew. They knew. Man, we have things in our life we know. We know we ain't dumb. Oh, my soul. We've grown up in Bible Christianity. This is probably the most preached to generation in human history. We know. So why don't we quit acting like we don't know? And get it right. They were defiled in their deeds. And then finally notice this. They were defiled in their devotions. He said to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Now let's just use the Bible as its own commentary. Paul spends a lot of time writing to the church at Corinth. uh, Unpacking this issue of meat sacrificed idols. And the Holy Ghost's answer. God's answer on this matter was simply this. If you're eating it as an act of idolatry. Then of course that's wrong. But he says, if you go to the market and buy meat, he says, take no thought. Take no thought. He said, don't worry about where it came from. See, here's what would happen at that time. They would make these uh, idolatrous sacrifices uh, there in the in the pagan temples. And then afterwards, they'd have this huge surplus of meat. One of the very few societal perks of idolatry, amen, was a surplus of, of beef. And they, But they would take these things and then they would take it to the market and they would sell it there. And some believers were, were getting caught up because they would say, what's the pedigree on your beef? Now, we ain't got a problem like this today. We eat Taco Bell. Amen. <laughs> we don't care. We eat crystals, right? We don't even care if it ever was meat. It doesn't even matter to us. But at that time, believers, they'd, they'd say, now, wh- where did this meat come from? It wasn't ever sacrificed to idols. And, and, of course, people would say, well, you know, I don't really know. I mean, who, who could possibly know? It didn't have a big sign that said, you know, Tuesday, sacrifice to Goddess Diana special. I just went to the market and bought a ribeye. And they were starting to break up about this with each other. It was causing division in the church. And Paul's answer is, is very simple, very biblical. He says the intent of the heart is what matters. If you're eating that as a as a purpose, then then of course God's displeased with that. By the way, mm, yeah, let's just do this. The uh, hmm, I don't know if you want me to. By the way, this informs my attitude about things like Halloween. So, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean this: if you think that every little kid going out there dressing up like a cowboy or a princess is doing it to worship the dark one. That's ignorant. It is. That's ignorant. That's naive. By the same token, are there people that absolutely celebrate that holiday because of its occult roots? Sure, there absolutely are. So you you say, preacher, how should that inform our behavior? How should that inform our attitude? Well, as with anything in our life, we ought to have the highest standards in the way we live. And the most grace in the way we deal with others. That's okay. That didn't cost you anything. So what does that mean, preacher? Well, it means that if God smote our conscience about it and and it bothers us, then yeah, we probably shouldn't let our kid participate in that. It bothers us. You say, but preacher, what about others? Well, what it means is this. We shouldn't be naive in thinking that's necessarily what others are doing in their participation of it. 
say, what should we do? Well, we should have grace in the way that we deal with one another. Isn't it funny how that word grace hits different depending on which end of it you are? Isn't it funny how good it hits when you're on the receiving end and how hard it hits when you're on the giving end? We ought to have grace. We ought to have grace in how we deal with one another. So, in other words, when you look at this passage, Paul had already dealt with this matter. But it's evident, using the Bible as its own commentary, it's evident that that is not what was transpiring here. You know how you know that? Because this evil woman was teaching them, not that they could, but that they should eat meat sacrificed unto idols. In other words, she was getting them to participate in idolatry. And I would say it this way, they were defiled in their devotions. They were still going to church, but they was also going to the pagan temple too. What concord hath Christ with Belial? What fellowship hath light with darkness? See, the fact of the matter is this. God doesn't just care that we love Him. God also has an opinion about what else we love. It's not enough that we love Him. It's also that we must love what He loves. Hate what He hates. Choose what He chooses. Reject what He rejects. See, here's the truth of the matter in our life. Some of us, it's not that we don't love Him. It's that we got a whole bunch of stuff that we got no business loving in our life. God says, I got a problem with that. Preacher, does God have a problem with me? I don't know. What does the Bible say? Because God will tell you if He does. He won't do it by intuition. He'll do it by instruction. He won't do it by feeling. He'll deal with the facts of your life and expect you to respond in faith. So are you brave enough? Are you, have you got the nerve and the grit to be honest with God about the things in your life and to say, Lord, are there some things that you've got an issue with? If they are by your grace and help, I want to get them out of my life. Let's bow together this morning. This musician comes to play. The altar's open. I'm not going to ask you a hundred questions. If God dealt with you about something in your life, would you meet him in the altar? Would you do that? I hope you will. I hope you will. I can't help. I can't fix. I can't change. But God can. So once you meet him down here in the altar, let him have his will, his way in your heart, in your life. Lord, I love you. Bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.